And so to see them, you know, as excited about what's happening as, as I am, makes me really happy. And, and to see them, you know, put a cheese platter together and see their hard work, you know, come to fruition, that, that to me is like, oh yeah, you know, that's, I feel like I've, I'm, I'm doing my job, that's my role. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Tasmania is known for some extraordinary produce, both from land and sea. But it wasn't until recently that we've witnessed an extraordinary evolution of its hospitality offering. What's it like to be part of the young, vibrant and colourful culinary landscape being created in Tasmania? Rodney Dunn is the owner of the Agrarian Kitchen in Tasmania. Rodney, how are you? Oh, good, Anthony. How are you? Good. You've um, been a leader in Tasmania and sort of and a big voice in this sort of amazing evolution that's happened in regards to food and hospitality there. Well, what's it been like for you over the last sort of a decade and a half? It's been really, it's been surreal to tell you the truth. Um, it's, it's funny to hear myself described in that way because here I was, you know, 13 years ago moving to this basically the end of the end of the world to some people and um, with this crazy idea that it could Tasmania could be this thing that we're seeing happen now and that's you know really interesting to me and I think justification that um, it really was a special place and I and I didn't get my wires crossed and there was such potential here and I think that's the thing that um, makes me happiest is is not only seeing what we've achieved in our business but looking at what else has happened here and how far it's come like it's really really exciting has this evolution which which as you say it is quite extraordinary but has it has it opened up sort of opportunities for you that you didn't sort of know would happen or didn't see Oh, yeah, look, I think, you know, in our business, we've certainly gone a lot further than what I ever imagined we would when we first were moving down. It was like, here, we want to move it, you know, it was kind of like a almost a stepping back and, you know, to a quieter life a little bit and going, oh, let's open this, you know, little cooking school down here and people come down. And, you know, here we are like 12 years later and with a restaurant and the cooking school in the garden and, you know, kiosk and, you know, all these things that have, that have happened, um, you know, 25 staff, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, take us back to that time. Like, what, what was it like creating that sort of vision that you had at the time? I mean, paint a picture of Tasmania and also the challenges you faced. Yeah, well, the thing about Tasmania was that you could see that the foundations were here. So I remember coming down on a trip that um, Tourism Tasmania brought me down and I was working for Gourmet Traveller at the time and I'd watched way too much River Cottage and just in my mind I thought, where in Australia could this sort of culture exist? And I remember thinking, oh, maybe Tasmania and it wasn't long after that I jumped at a chance to come down and going around and talking to some of the chefs that were here and seeing the producers and just this culture of try anything, you know, oh, let's, you know, what could we do in Tasmania? Because I think the problem here for farmers was that, you know, you're a long way away. It's a very, it's something like the second most expensive stretch of water in the world, that Bass Strait. So to compete to compete with, um, you know, mainland farmers on grain and on meat and things like that, it was very hard to do. So you saw these farmers that were going, hey, 
what's this wasabi thing? Oh, hey, maybe we can grow truffles. And, you know, just looking for alternatives. And, you know, that that was what excited me. And moving down here, we kind of – there just wasn't that um, – that culture yet with with um, like that producer restaurant connection, and so that idea that we do something where we tried to do as much as our own stuff and then tried to supplement that a little bit was kind of what enables us enabled us to start in the first place, and that was the thing I think um, for us was was starting that and just seeing the things sort of develop around it. And as I would find, say, a great producer of X, Y, or Z, I'd sort of add them, I guess, to the fold. So, yeah, it's been – and in terms of restaurants, it just there just wasn't much here at all. Um, you know, uh, Luke Burgess opened Garagist – well, first Pecora and Garagist, and, you know, he's a very, very good friend of mine, and, and he was sort of a cohort on this first little journey down here. And, you know, we did some trips around – looking at land and thinking about ideas and things that we could do. So, yeah, we settled on the cooking school and Severine, my wife, um, said, I think we mentioned restaurants. She said, no, don't do a restaurant. That'd be crazy. You'll be tied to it. You know, that's mad. And so I remember in my first book saying, oh, we'll never, you know, we'll never open a restaurant. And, you know, life (laughs) makes a liar out of you, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, you opened a pretty damn good restaurant, but uh, what what did you start growing first? And, you know, you you had a mix of um, animals and and vegetables and things as well. Like, what, what, how did you get started? So, the property where um, the agrarian kitchen started was an old schoolhouse, um, and we had five acres of land around us. So, we started the garden. I had a guy help me set up the garden, and we had a few, we had pigs because that was, you know, something I'd. I was um, passionate about having some pigs and making some charcuterie. Um, and we had – then we had some milking goats. So, I think I've had everything over the years and had geese and we had chickens and, you know, bits and pieces of everything. And it was really about that immersive experience where, you know, people could really come and, and really get to the crux of food and see it at its source and, and look at what the difference is if we, say, pull that carrot out of ground as to – you know, having something that's, you know, you're not sure how long it's been out of the soil and you're not sure what the variety is. So it was really kind of drilling back into that that bare, that um, grassroots, pardon the pun, of, of food. What's, what surprised you early on when the, the cooking school was, was up and running? I think I was probably most surprised, well, firstly, about the reaction. I think there was a, there's a lot of people out there who, were of the same mindset and thought, you know, that was something that was exciting to kind of experience. But also for me, it's been a constant journey of learning flavour. And so when you think you know something and then like taking it to the next step, we go, oh, wow, that's even more flavour or that's even better than I thought. It still happens to this day. So, you know, that's something I'll never get sick of. And and I usually say to people, it's been a very selfish journey because I'm doing it for myself first and foremost, <laughs> um, and then you know the rest. You know the, the the rest of the people. You know it's nice to share with people. We all know what it's like to eat in restaurants by ourselves or to have food experience by ourselves. This is yeah. so much better when they're shared with other people. Uh, I want to explore sort of what you're doing there and the creation of the restaurant and, and what's in the plans for later this year as well. But um, take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in your family? I mean, I always, 
always liked eating, but I think the, the thing was, you know, it was never a chore for me. It was, you know, some kids, they're like, oh, I have to eat, you know, I have to eat to fuel my body. But um, I grew up with a very, in a very Anglo-Saxon background, you know, very white bread. Um, it was nothing exciting. Like, I don't have those stories of potting peas at the knees of my grandmother or anything remotely like that. Um, I do remember like aunties and being good bakers. And so I think that's probably carried through to this day. Like I love baked goods. I love sugar. I love, you know, cake and I love pastries and stuff like that. So that's that's probably the one standout. Everything else was, you know, roasts and um, lamb chops and um, overcooked vegetables. And, you know, my mum was never, was never an amazing cook. She's not someone that, you know, tried to reprodu- replicate. I, I grew up in the era of, you know, kind of like continental packets of soup with the apricot chicken recipe on the back and, and on the French onion soup. And that was, <laughs> that was something special. Oh, we're having apricot chicken tonight. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was one of, I'm one of four boys. And so you can imagine it was just, you know, putting food on the table, feed, feeding these growing kids. So yeah. Your career in food is quite fascinating. You, you actually sort of started in restaurants. Tell us about those sort of early days and what the kitchens were like for you. Yeah. Look, I remember, you know, right back at those tender young years where you need to decide what you're going to do in life and. I enjoyed cooking and cooking was something that I, living out on a property kind of out of the town, it was kind of something that was something to do. And so, you know, you'd be hungry and mum would go, oh, well, make something then. And mum had this collection of women's weekly cookbooks as many mums of that time. And, you know, I remember pouring through those and looking at, looking at, oh, you know, the beautiful biscuits and stuff. And, and that's how I kind of got interested in cooking. And then from then, I got an apprenticeship. My dad hooked me up with an apprenticeship at a local restaurant, which um, which was, you know, it was fine, but it wasn't. You know, I used to buy the gourmet travellers and the Vogue Entertaining, and and it wasn't, it wasn't that. And so I remember when I first started there, like most of the desserts were bought in, and and then I started like making a few things, and and you know, I wanted to make stuff from scratch, and just you know, I just wanted more, so. It was, wasn't long before I moved on to a, um, a restaurant there, which was quite remarkable for it was Griffith in, in southwest New South Wales. So six or seven hours away from Sydney and about five from Melbourne. And there was an Italian chef there who opened a place called Cafe Pisano, which was, was uh, one had at the time. And that was like a whole new world for me. And, you know, they made everything from scratch. And, you know, that was super exciting and kind of what I feel as a really – gave me the fundamentals of, of good food. And beyond that, I, I, you know, always wanted to take the next step and move to the big smoke. And um, there was a job going at Tetsuya's at the time for a third-year apprentice. So I said, okay, that's the, yeah, three hats. Yep, great, let's go. So I remember my father drove me down. We drove down, so six, seven hours down and six, seven hours back in the same day and spent about probably 15, 20 minutes with Tets. And sat down and had a little chat. And he's like, this was on a Thursday. He's like, right, can you start Monday? Oh, Tuesday. No, we didn't open Monday, Tuesday. And I was like, yeah. So went home, packed everything up and just, you know, moved down, stayed with family, friends and and was kind of just 
in that little Roselle kitchen um, working my butt off. And it was a real eye-opener for me going from, you know, doing 40-ish hours to, you know, 80, so 70 or 80. So that was kind of the baptism of fire um, where, you know, everything was about perfection. Everything had to be perfect and you did the same thing day in, day out. It was the same process. Um, menu rarely changed. Um, yeah, so. Do, do you have any stories of what it was like to work with Tetsuya then? Um, look, it was he was tough but fair, I must say. Like um, anything you did wrong and got in trouble for, it was, it was certainly warranted. And <laughs> I must say, I probably appreciate it more as a boss uh, as an employer, then I do, then I then I did then. So um, yeah, yeah. Look, it, it was he, he he was good, and I certainly you know one thing that I took away from that place is just self discipline. You know, having having that level of discipline for yourself where you want to do the best you can possibly do and not kind of slack off and you know cut those chives a little bit longer or you know just just. Working to a to an ideal. You moved to um, what some might say is the dark side to media um, from the industry. Tell us about what triggered that transition and what it was like for you. Well, I remember um, feeling kind of very worn down at um, Tetsuya's and kind of not in a frame of mind that you know I could see myself with my own restaurant, which was the inevitable inevitable step really, and. When I was at Tetsuya's, I met a food photographer and followed her around for a couple of weeks when Tets was actually over um, at the James Beard Foundation cooking with Charlie Trotter. So I saw this whole other side to things where you could still work with great food, but work a Monday to Friday, you know, nine to five-ish, um, and be involved in, in probably a, a more creative side, um, if anything, um, certainly judging judging by, you know, most restaurants of that time where the menus stayed relatively the same and didn't really, you know, change too much seasonally, so to speak. And um, so I had an opportunity probably about a year after that where, you know, I could either – I found myself either having to go back into restaurants, like to go to get another restaurant job, or an opportunity to start working in, in the food media. So I started just assisting food stylists and, you know, I could, one of the things is I could cook. So I could I could help them get the get the ingredients together for a photo shoot and go and cook it and, and you know, present it for the for the shoot. So that's how I sort of started, just doing doing that. And I did some agency chefing work in the meantime, which I can never – I can't recommend to anyone. It was very soul-destroying. <laughs> So, yeah, I just worked my way in like that and worked freelance for most of my career and um, full-time at Gourmet Traveller just in the last three years. Did, did that experience in the media, did it change your perception of food in the food industry? Um, yeah, look, inevitably, yes, it, it always does. And I think, you know, working out of season with produce and um, I think, you know, it, it changed my perception certainly of how to present things and to plate things. So there's positives and negatives to everything. And one of the big things I think was in terms of how to actually write a recipe because that's a skill as chefs, they're scribbles in a, in a scrappy old notebook. They're not thought out 
sets of instructions for somebody who has never met you um, can kind of reproduce your recipe. So I think in that respect, it's been, it was an incredibly value, ex- valuable experience to learn to write a recipe for someone else who to cook is, yeah, a very good skill. What were some of the challenges, you know, when you did move to Tasmania and change your life so dramatically, what were the challenges sort of in the the first sort of five years for you guys? Well, when we first moved down, our son, he was uh, two months old. And so trying to set up initially with him, and I remember Severine would – and just starting a business from scratch that, you know, nobody has ever heard of before and certainly trying to do something where you don't, you know, you've you've kind of spent all your life saving. So, you know, which we were trying to do it as like Severine used to wash up in class and so she'd put our son down and she'd come out and wash up and then she knew knew that she'd pay for it later because he'd be awake half the night and – you know, it's little little things like that. Being out at you know eight o'clock at night, mowing the lawn for the class the next day, and it's all those things that I think people don't realise. You're kind of like a duck, you know, paddling like mad underwater, but smooth sailing on top. Um, so that that was difficult. Um, and I think you know I've always been the type of person who always kind of wants to you know you want to you look at yourself critically and you want to improve what you do. So you know that constant evolution. Um, has been something that I think has driven us from the start. It's it's an interesting thing to bring up because um, you receive many accolades um, for the cooking school, you know, in, including sort of greatest gourmet food experience. And um, what, what were the pressures like once there was that sort of limelight on what you were doing? Um, look, I, I, I think we didn't really think too much about it. I think what it enabled us to do was to just get a – a, you know, really solid following and, you know, most classes would be full and um, it enabled us to do what we do and continue to improve. And I think what helped me was being on the other side of it where, you know, you you having worked in the media that gives those accolades and I guess, you know, taking them seriously but not taking them too seriously. Like it doesn't define who you are and it doesn't define what you do. It's nice to be recognised but not let it bring you down at the same time, not feel the pressure just to continue on. You know, you got them for doing what you're doing, just keep doing what you're doing. Um, yeah, and, and equally, if you don't get them, you know, it doesn't doesn't mean what you're doing is not valid or good. It's just, you know, it's the way it is. You mentioned that Severin um, said no way to a restaurant ever, but in 2017, you opened the Agrarian Kitchen Eatery. Um how, how did the uh, how did that come about? And what was it like? Well, um, the building in in the old asylum um, was had 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 some renovations done to it. Um, basically, just to give you a bit of background of New Norfolk, it it was home to um, the Southern Hemisphere's largest mental asylum that had had grown over many years and stunning architecture, and, and it closed in two thousand and. From that time, it kind of started to fall apart as old buildings do and, you know, the local youth come and use it as a playground and it just, it, it was, you know, that many ideas had kind of been put forth about what to do with it, but it was kind of pre-Tasmania being a place to visit, you know, more than, say, the caravanning set and the camping set. So the local um, council had been given the buildings by the state government um, and they 
got a grant from the federal and state government combined to start to do some things. And so the building that we're in, they started to renovate. And the local mayor at the time said to me, oh, you want to come along and have a look at this building? Maybe you know someone, you know, they'd be interested. And so Severin and I came along and walked inside and went, oh, my God, this is amazing and it's too good to sit here doing nothing. And we kind of just looked at each other and we both knew what we were thinking, like we're in big trouble. Um, <laughs> and, and like if, if, you know, us being the crazy risk takers, if we didn't do it, who was going to do it? And the town badly needed somewhere, you know, that was a draw card to eat. Because, you know, you'd go down south to Signet and there was Red Velvet Lounge and, and you know, it was sort of something you go, oh, let's get in the car and drive out on the, down on the weekend and have something to eat. So it sort of just evolved from there. And, you know, I remember initially it was going to be like, you know, this sort of really casual eatery. People can pop in and have a plate of pasta and people, you know, it's um, we, we won't make our bread. You know, we'll buy some great pigeonhole bread and we'll do this and do that. And then we open and before we know it, we're making everything, cheese included, all the charcuterie and going, this is not kind of like it's great, we're busy, but, you know, it's for, for the energy and effort we're putting in, I, I think two things. I think the customers kind of expect, some of the customers expected um, probably more, something a bit more serious, not, not so light and casual. Um, and then the flip side of that, you get the people who are used to the local cafe where they can get a bowl of chips and, you know, this and that, and, and it wasn't for them either. So, you know, trying to cook from this garden, fulfil this a la carte menu was, was really quite a challenge each week. Um, and, you know, Ali, um, our first chef, did an amazing job to, you know, kind of keep all this craziness under control. I remember, you know, you'd be you'd be running from the time we opened the doors to the, the time we closed them. And it was hard on everyone. It was hard on staff. It was hard on equipment, you know, just to be that kind of busy, bustling, bustling place. So, you know, I remember with my, with my current head chef, Stephen, when he took over, you know, having that discussion about moving to something that's more reminiscent of, of the cooking school where it's, a menu taken from the garden, the best of what's there and us being able to control it a little bit more and give people that experience. Because already at that time, people, most people, probably 50%, maybe more, were choosing the Feed Me menu and wanting that experience anyway. But the question was, how do you end one thing that people know you as and open another? Along comes a pandemic and suddenly, you know, <laughs> the opportunity's there. So when we reopened, it was set menu, as most people did, and we also opened our kiosk, which was the casual side of it. So, hmm. well, what's been the success of this sort of change in the model that you've you've created? <laughs> I think it allows us to deliver a really special, tailored experience. And from the beginning, we've kind of been had to be educators. So you know, I guess to lead people down that path that vegetables are really special and down that path that, um, you know, that you can you can kind of really um, put seasonality on a plate and not just seasonality in terms of a, of a state or a country, seasonality in terms of this place right here in this garden. So that's been really that's been really great. If we want to, serve, you know, if the carrots are absolutely amazing, we can serve a carrot on the plate. 
You know, it might be grilled and brushed with um, some shoyu that we've made. Um, but, you know, that's all part of the story and to have this kind of progression of courses that just really do – like they re- – you know, so many people talk about seasonality, but they really do highlight exactly what's right at this time on this day. So that's been lovely. We're sort of pushing into spring right now. What's, what's, what should people expect on the menu? What sort of things are coming from the garden? Well, we've got um, – the most amazing peas. There's a variety that we serve called Lacy Lady, which I got from a neighbour who got it from another guy out at, at where we live out at Lackland. And this, and you know, we've grown them. We've grown you know most varieties of peas that I could get my hands on, and these ones stand out. So kind of we continue to grow them and to have them like so sweet that they're you know you, you'd think they've been um, glazed in icing sugar um, is something that I've I've known for the last ten years. 10, 12 years, but to give them to a customer who who has never had peas like that, that's that's what it's about. The uh, the agrarian kitchen um, is going to combine operations under one roof uh, in October. Tell us a bit about um, that decision and what's happening. Well, you know, for many years when we opened the restaurant, um, you know, I would have thought there would have been more sort of cross-pollination, I guess, between the two. But what we found is we'd have guests that would come out to the cooking school and, I, you know, another guest would say something about the restaurant and they'd be like, oh, do you have a restaurant? And then equally in the restaurant, there'd be, there'd be guests and, um, you know, they'd say, oh, this has come from the cooking school and they'd be like, oh, do you have a cooking school? So, you know, just that that kind of, you know, it needed to be, you know, together. And, you know, equally I'd be out at the cooking school and go, oh, that pasta roller, it's in at the restaurant. Or they'd be like, oh, where's that such and such? Oh, it's out at the cooking school. So the opportunity to put them all in one building was something that would have been ideal. But the kicker with all of that was that there was this big empty room at the other end of the restaurant building that hadn't that wasn't being used. And then the final piece of the puzzle was the garden because that's central to everything and literally 20 meters from the back door of the restaurant is a big walled exercise yard that was part of the asylum for um you know those that were sort of imprisoned in that ward it was a sort of a prison ward were let out to roam around so it's one acre in size with these big walls thick concrete walls and i remember Pelissa anderson was down and i showed her the space she goes look, why don't you move the garden into here? And I was like, oh, yeah, 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 sort of just – and then she was talking to my wife when she went out to where the garden was and then we had time over the next few hours to think about it and then when I got home, we was like, you know what, that's a really good idea. So we kind of worked on it and spoke to council about, about leasing the space and, and, yeah, you know, probably three years later, here we are, it's coming to fruition and – so we've been able to build a big brand new kitchen in, in what we call the possum room. It had no ceiling in it and possums running through the rafters and developed this amazing garden from scratch out in, in, the, um, in the exercise yard. So, yeah, we've, our first class is, I think, the 30th of October and, yeah, we're on, we're on from then. Has this big move that you made to Tasmania, you know, all those years ago and what you've created, has it, has it changed you? 
Um, I don't feel like it has. I'm still a dreamer. Like I'm a typical Piscean if you believe in star signs. And, you know, if you can dream it up, I'll, I'll have, a, have a crack at trying to do it. And I think the fact that um, risks I've taken have paid off, and I think right back to when I moved from chefing into working in magazines, I've continued to take risks that have paid off. Educated risks, I like to think, but I think that's what's helped drive this and us go, well, why can't we do this? What what would the ideal scenario be? What would the ideal restaurant, if I had to have a restaurant, what would it would it look like? And this is it. So, you know, it's it's just I've just been fortunate to be in the situations, but also brave enough to take the risks. Well, the restaurant scene has been evolving incredibly down there, but what's important in running a restaurant? sort of in Tasmania, is, is it a bit different to the sort of big cities like Sydney and Melbourne? Look, I think when people come to Tasmania, they expect you to at least have local produce. And so they come away on this destinational dining experience to wherever it might be in the state and expect to be eating produce of the state. So I think there's that that onus on on all of the – expectation on, on any restaurateur and chef um, – and I think also it extends to the wine. People want to be drinking Tasmanian wines as much as possible. Um, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to be in Italy drinking Australian wines. Um, and just I think what's happening in the world is just that that change in terms of um, destinational dining and that, that seasonality and the customers are much more savvy. So, yeah, I think that there is that expectation, whereas – I don't feel that when I go to Melbourne or Sydney and dine out, I I'm not like, oh, where's this from and, you know, why are you serving this at this time of year? Well, you continue to do amazing things down there in Tasmania. What do you love about what you do? Oh, look, I think at this stage of our journey, I really love, you know, seeing our staff get excited and we've got a, a you know, a laugh about the quote, you know, they've drunk the Kool-Aid and we have a little saying is they've drunk the kefir milk because we use kefir to culture our butter and our cheeses and stuff like that. And so to see them, you know, as excited about what's happening as, as I am makes me really happy. And to see them, to see the cheeses, you know, because we make all our cheese that we serve and to see them, you know, the um, you know, put a cheese platter together where we've got five different cheeses that, you know, each one of the kitchen staff have made to be able to put those on a plate and and see their hard work, you know, come to fruition. That that to me is like, oh yeah, you know, that's I feel like I've I'm I'm doing my job. That's my role. Because Stephen, my head chef, does an amazing job of, you know, putting the menu together for the for the dining room. But it's you know I'm there to support, if you know what I mean. Well, Rodney, it's absolutely extraordinary what you've built down there and continue to build. Looking forward to seeing um, everything once it opens again um, later in October. Um, thanks for joining us on Deep in the Weeds. Keep in touch. We'll catch up again soon. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Anthony. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.